0: You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale.
1: With the Major League Baseball season now over, Fox will be front and center on our televisions with its postseason coverage. So we'll be seeing a lot of Tom Verducci, an outstanding baseball writer for Sports Illustrated and a reporter and commentator covering baseball for Fox and the MLB Network. Graduate of Penn State, Tom worked for Florida Today for one year before joining the sports department at Newsday. I worked at Newsday at the time, and I remember Tom taking the department by storm. He was confident and talented. He could turn a phrase better than a lot of columnists, much older and more experienced than he. Worked at Newsday for 10 years before joining the staff at Sports Illustrated. And he had a broadcasting in 2014 when he became the first uh, non-former, we say non-former athlete. He was an athlete, but non-former major league baseball player to work as a color commentator for a major network since Howard Cosell in 1983 when he worked the booth for the 2014 World Series with Joe Buck and Harold Reynolds. Basically, you know it's a big game when Tom Verducci shows up. So Tom, welcome to Sports Connections. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. So if I remember correctly, you were a pretty good baseball player yourself. You just didn't make it professionally. One of the first stories I remember you writing for Newsday was on participating in a fantasy camp. Uh, how how good were you as a baseball player?
0: <laughs> my desire was my best skill. So I just always loved <laughs> baseball. But, um, yeah, I think that story you're talking about, there was a professional tryout being held at CW Post College on Long Island. So I I was young and dumb enough to say, hey, why don't I just go to this tryout and see what happens? And it was a lot of fun. I I wrote a story about what it's like for these people who, like me, never want to really give up on their dream to get out there and try to impress some pro scouts. Uh, So I wrote about that story. I think the way I graded it out was, um, I think one of the scouts said, you better take the typewriter off your back when you run the 40-yard sprint. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I think my scouting report wound up being something like, He'd make a really good coach.
1: <laughs> it says <laughs> <something> about my ability. <laughs> so you you knew the game. It just it, transferring from head to feet and head to hands didn't quite make it, right?
0: Yeah. Well, I was lucky enough. I consider myself lucky because my dad was a high school football and baseball coach. Um, so I grew up not just around the game, but understanding what's behind the game. It's yeah. not just what happens uh, on game days. But the practice times, the off hours when he's always trying to figure out ways for teams and players to be better. Um, So understanding kind of the subtleties of the game uh, from a coach's perspective when I was young, I always thought that was, at least when I got into this business, a really big advantage.
1: When did you know that you were a good writer?
0: Well, I knew I always wanted to write. I mean, as far back as I can remember, I'm talking about grade school. um, I always loved sports and always loved just the process of writing. And I thought, well, it seems pretty cool to just combine the two and write about sports. Um, But really, I think even more so writing than sports was my first love. Um, So I didn't have a sense of what makes a good writer and what doesn't. But I did have a sense that this was my passion And I think no matter what discipline you enjoy, you tend to be really good at what you enjoy and what you love. So it probably wasn't until later, until I really got into being a professional writer, that you begin to realize the opportunities start to open up. But for me, it was just about the process of doing something
1: I loved. And you've added broadcasting. Is that something you thought about for a while? Or did the opportunities just come up and you say, yeah, I think I could do that.
0: Yeah, it wasn't something I really wanted to do or thought about at all. I mean, I'm old enough to come up in an era where you pretty much picked what side of the journalism fence you wanted to be on, print or electronic. And I was a print guy, I just loved the process of writing. Uh, Didn't have a desire to see myself on TV and um, the media world changed in the course of my professional career. And uh, what I found was when I started doing it, started doing some TV work, First of all, I wanted to be good at it. anything you do. You want to be good at, but I did begin to really enjoy it. So it wasn't something that it was a big desire for me growing
1: up, but it became something that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I was interviewed recently, and uh, actually was with Joe Lenardi, and he asked me, you know, since I've gotten into the electronic side with this podcast, what's the difference? And I said, the the print has a delete button, <laughs> and and the electronic, if you say something, it's on it's on tape or film or whatever, somewhere floating in cyberspace forever. So which do you like better now that you've been doing it for seven years?
0: You know, I like them in different ways. I completely understand what you've been saying here about there's no delete key on TV. It's just it's first take, especially, you know, doing so many live shots for sports journalism. You just have to get it on the first take. And the writing process can be a laborious one and yeah. lots of drafts and rewrites and you're thinking about it all the time. So I do enjoy the process of writing a whole lot, but I also enjoy kind of the immediacy yeah. of doing the TV work. So they're different and yet there's some similarities. Uh, I'm not sure I'd pick one over the other as to which one I'd like better, but I, I like the different challenges
1: of each one. Yeah, there's certainly... There's certainly some advantages to the delete button, but there's also some disadvantages because you're, you're never quite sure, unless you're on a very tight deadline, you're never quite sure when you hit send. Could I think about it for another day? Could I think about it for another hour and go back and change it and make it better? There's something about saying, okay, this is it. I'm doing it now and that's it. And that's it.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with that because anybody who writes knows, you know, there's always a point where you want to do more, but there's always a point where you do have to hit that send button.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, It's never perfect. And you know that. So I, I think you begin with TV, you begin to learn with that's the best that I can do in this moment. And, you know, there's adrenaline involved in that as well. I mean, you're doing a live hit or you're doing a broadcast from the booth. Um, you have to nail that
1: first take. So, um, I, that's a challenge. I like it. Have you, uh, have you ventured away from baseball much? I know that most of your career, certainly with sports illustrated and, and TV, you've been focused on baseball. Have you done much away from baseball?
0: Really not a whole lot. I mean, if you go way back, my first job out of college was covering the Miami dolphins down in Florida um I've written uh, a few pieces early on uh, at SI on some other sports, some basketball, some uh, football. I've started the last couple of years to be writing essays for college football on Fox, which is really enjoyable. Uh-huh. Uh, I really like college football and it's an opportunity to write as well as, you know, present something storytelling visually on the Fox uh, Saturday show. So getting a little more involved in that. That's been a lot of fun, but for the most part, um, I'm doing what I'd really choose to do. And that is to cover baseball. I mean, it, there's so many stories to write. And as you know, that the baseball season is pretty long and it really doesn't stop even in the off season.
1: So there's plenty of things to keep you busy. Um, so baseball is your first love then from a sports standpoint.
0: Yeah, it is. Um, if I could have choose chosen one sport to cover, it would be baseball. Um, it just, for whatever reason, it was a sport I gravitated to. I played, I played everything growing up and I loved all sports, but baseball was always my favorite sport. Um, so to me, it's, uh, it's a great sport to write about, but more than that, I just, like, I tell people I'm lucky enough. I think I'm lucky when I go to a ballpark, I'm not really, a, am definitely not a fan of either team. And, and I can say that in all honesty. So I enjoy being at the ballpark to see what happens in the game, regardless of what my rooting interest would be because I have no rooting interest. So no matter who wins or loses, I'm okay with that. i never walk away from a ballpark say, Oh man, that was a tough game or my team lost. Um, Mm. so I understand how how fans bring their, uh, their allegiances to the ballpark, but I kind of like not having allegiances because to me the game is the attraction, not necessarily a team.
1: Now, you don't have a favorite team. You don't have a team you root for. Do you have favorite players that you like to cover that you like to see do well? Well, I think that's true.
0: I think um, just being, you know, um, in the business and you get to know people and you connect with some people more than others. But for me, you know, I'll go back to something the great writer Roger Angel said, we're always asking uh, people, whether it's players, coaches, managers, To really share their stories with us. Uh, And sometimes they can be very private, intimate stories that they otherwise might not tell. So I tend to gravitate towards the guys who are really good at doing that, you know, people who understand the game outside of maybe just themselves to see big pictures, uh, people who express themselves really well, and just in general, people who are just good people that are easy to connect with. So I think what you do first, you root for good stories. We're in the business of telling narratives and you root for good stories, but the human side of you says you want to see people who you think and understand are good people to do well too. So I I think that's a natural, you want to call it a rooting interest. Um, I guess it is. Um, I I wouldn't say I have favorite players, but yeah, anybody who to me is a great interview is probably a good subject for a story.
1: I've said, for a long time that the, my favorite part of writing, and I've done 23 books, are the interviews that lead to the story. Is that your favorite part as well?
0: Yeah, it is. And when I say interviews, and I say this to a lot of uh, young journalists starting out, they're really conversations when they right. succeed, uh, succeed at the highest level. So we think of an interview, or most people think of an interview as a strict question and answer back and forth usually there's not much back and forth. You're just asking questions and the person is responding. It works best when there's a real back and forth where it becomes a conversation. And that's right. when people sort of let their guards down. You know, it's one of the interesting things about the last couple of years, actually, with so many interviews being done on zoom. And it's hard for people to really engage in conversations, especially when it's a group setting on zoom. Yeah. Whereas I prefer much rather prefer to interview someone one-on-one in person where you have that eye contact Um, You can start. And again, for me, it's I tell people it's not so much about asking good questions. That's a huge part of it. But making somebody comfortable so that you engage them in a conversation and you get close to what the truth is. I always imagine writing a story, say it's a feature profile on someone, just this big dartboard. And, you know, most people, when you interview them, are very careful. You'll get around the edges of that dartboard in terms of who that person really is. But to get to that bullseye. First of all, you have to be prepared. That's the biggest thing, but it's really about connecting with them. So they say, okay, I can trust this person. Um, I can talk to them as I would someone that I'm familiar with. So um, interviews, absolutely. It's my favorite part as well. And, um, and I think connecting on interviews is is super important.
1: I, I think that's the, the hardest part of the last two seasons is not being able to go into the clubhouse before the game and just chat. You know, there's many times I'll be in the clubhouse for half hour, 45 minutes before the game. And I'll go I'll go to both clubhouses. But I know I'm in Kansas City and I know the Royals better. I'll go in there and never take my recorder out of my pocket, but just go in there and chat with guys. And we can't do that. So I'm hoping I'm hoping that that comes back. But you're right. I think interview sounds very stiff, very Mm -hmm. formal conversation uh, is is definitely a better way to do it. Now, I want to talk about your books. How many books have you written and and tell us about them? Um, I'm not sure
0: exactly how many I've written, but um, I've written two bestsellers. One was the Yankee years with Joe Torre about his time managing the New York Yankees and also the Cubs way after the Cubs won the world series in 2016. I've written a couple of other ones as well. Um, And uh, the Cubs is the the last book that I did. I remember (laughs) When the Cubs got into that postseason, it looked like they had a chance of winning. I mean, I think still to this day, it it was the biggest championship in sports in terms of the narrative, in terms of the history. I can't think of anything that would be big or would have been bigger at that time. Uh, So I almost felt an obligation to really explore what this means, how they arrived at this point. Um, Just being part of that whole World Series, actually the whole playoff run, but especially the World Series against Cleveland. Um, It was inspiring. And again, I'm not even a Cubs fan, but it was just a great story. And you you saw baseball to me at its best where baseball connects people and communities and um, just the energy that was in the ballpark uh, in Chicago. Actually, even in Cleveland, too, because a lot of Cubs fans purchased tickets in Cleveland as well. So, uh, yeah, that was, again, almost a sense of obligation, like, man, this is a really big story and I really should write this book. What was your first one? Um, probably the first one I wrote, uh, with Joe Tory chasing the dream, which was more of his, uh, life story after the Yankees won the world series in 1996, um, I had written a feature story, uh, for SI on Torrey during that 96 postseason. uh, we started connected and, uh, of course the Yankees winning the world series in 96 was the first time in a really long time. And Torrey had just been hired that year. Um, so that was a great story as well. So, um, and working with Joe Torrey was great. I mean, I tell people all the time, you know, the best thing about Joe Torrey is he's just so honest. So a lot of times when you write a book or do an interview for a story, people are very guarded, maybe steer you in a different direction than they really want you to go. Um, but he is just such an honest person. You can see why he was known as a great players manager and connected so well with players
1: because his honesty it just really shines through. Did, did you come up with the idea and approach a publisher or did a publisher approach you about doing some of these books? I think that was a little bit of both. Um, for me, the Cubs was definitely
0: my idea. And then okay. we started to pitch it to publishers and got interest from publishers. And that happened obviously before the World Series, before they won. Um, so we did have that in the works before the Cubs won the World Series. Um, I think the Tory one was a little bit kind of a mutual of a publisher wanting it, and me wanting to write it, Tory interested. It just kind of all dovetailed together, in the kind of the euphoria of the Yankees winning the World Series that
1: year. Um, do you subscribe to the theory that if you love what you do for a living, you'll never work a day in your life? I do, and again,
0: I go back. I, I go back to my dad, who just loved coaching and teaching and you know he'd be watching a college football game say and he'd be taking notes on x's and o's certain plays that he, or defenses he would incorporate and um i'm not sure i really understood it at the time but subliminally i, I did that wow this guy really loves what he's doing gets up in the morning and is, and is excited about going to work and uh being on the field with something that he loved so yeah, I, I do think that. I think uh, no matter what it is, you know, if you, you find something that you really love, you're probably going to be good at it. Yeah. And if you, especially if you find something that you do when it's your off hours, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I just love to write. I would just, you know, write things when I was young, even when it wasn't an assignment for school, say. So I knew that was a passion. So, yeah, no matter what your discipline is, if there's something that that you're really passionate about, especially if you do it in your quote unquote off time. And then you can also make it your vocation.
1: I mean, that's hitting the lottery. So so the follow up, the easy follow up is have you ever worked a day in your life? <laughs>
0: <laughs> there are times when I say yes, you know, <laughs> I don't want to say, you know, it's all milk and honey, but um, certainly the passion is still there. I haven't lost any of that at all, but there is, you know, there's a grind to the job as well, especially yep. when it comes to travel. I mean, those are the days that kind of beat you down a little bit. Um, and it's been interesting getting back into the traveling world this year. Yeah. Really not much at all last season that um, you realized how inefficient and time consuming travel is and, you know, nothing goes according to schedule. So those are the kind of things that kind of get in your way and maybe get you down a little bit. But to me that the job itself, and especially in my business, it, it's never the same, you know, yeah. the hours are different. The stories are different. Things are unfolding in real time. You always plan for things, but never know it's going to show up.
1: Um, so that keeps it fresh and lively to me. And then when you walk out on the field and you see that green grass all the energy comes back, all the energy that was drained at airports and, and in taxis and in hotel rooms. You walk back out on that field and you go, I'm home. And that's when your energy comes back, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And I think this year, especially uh, that was reinforced, getting back on the field after, you know, the covid year last year where there was no even field access. Right. Just to get back on the field. Um I don't want to say I took it for granted, but the appreciation level of it yeah. really went up this year to be back there. I tell people all the time, I'm really not happy unless I've got dirt on my loafers. Cause that means I'm on the field batting practice around the cage, talking to people who who play and love this game and, and just being a part of the baseball community in a little way. Um, and doing that at ground level is really yeah. cool. So yeah, that's, um, yeah, despite all the travel nightmares that happen and things that always go great when you're chasing a story, of course, but uh, there's something just right. The best part of the day is being out in the ballpark before the gates open. The place is quiet. Guys are working on their craft. Guys are pretty much in a good mood at that point because you have a new day. Even if you yeah. lost the night before, nothing has been established yet. It's full of possibilities and uh, there's nothing better than, than that time of day and being on the field.
1: I want to ask you about one, and I didn't warn you about this one ahead of time, but I think it'll be fresh enough in your mind. We tried to do this a couple of weeks ago, and you sent me your travel schedule. You had to go here and then here and then here, and you threw in the middle of that. Now, you weren't saying, I get to do this. You were just telling me how busy you were that you went to the Field of Dreams. Just talk about that experience. I've actually been there, and I'll tell you my story in a second, but just talk about broadcasting a game from Dyersville, Iowa, in the middle of the field of dreams.
0: Well, that was my first time there. So just the experience, if you're a baseball fan or just a fan of the movie, um, it's one of the great places that to me, I can honestly say it exceeds whatever your expectations are Absolutely, and the expectations are huge, right? Yeah. But the minute I walked out in the field, it was like, wow. First of all, it's the most striking visual setting you will ever see a Major League Baseball game played in. And I've been lucky enough to be, in I don't know how many scores of parks and nothing compares to that setting. What really got me, first thing I noticed when I stepped on the field was how the corn in the outfield went up in a rolling hill. And that was by design. I mean, everything was done to really make the game pop visually. Yeah. In other words, if you just had a row of corn on a flat, line uh, beyond the outfield fence you wouldn't see the depth of it and it looked like it went on forever and just sort of the, the cinematic aspect of that was just the touches there were amazing no ads on the scoreboard reclaimed barn wood for the barn and center field for the batter's eye uh, the low camera angles made the game just so visually interesting you couldn't take your eyes off it so I thought everything was done even better than you could have imagined. It was a great experience. Walking out to the movie field as well was pretty cool. Walking through the cornfield. Um, yeah. For anybody who loves baseball or you know, has seen the movie or knows what it's about, it, it was just a great experience. And I'm glad they're going back there again um, in 2022. Did, did you get to play catch on the movie set field? I didn't, you know, by the time I got over, over there, it was probably about an hour before the game. Okay. And there were a lot of people, yeah. obviously, with the same idea of wanting to walk out there. So there actually weren't that many games with catch going on because there were so many people out there. It would be pretty dangerous. But, yeah, um, yeah it's such a intimate setting. And, and I thought... The other thing about that game, I think it reinforced the best thing about baseball is baseball works best. And when it's most simple, it's you know generational. It's mothers, daughters, fathers, sons. You, you know, you have an uncle who taught you the game. We all, all remember that a lot of people. It's their first game as a kid. You're introduced to at least a mm-hmm. team game and just that connection there. So you had this setting where that was reinforced. And there wasn't a lot of loud music or the scoreboard wasn't telling people, Hey, make noise. Yeah. Uh, It was just a really kind of a stripped down baseball game a baseball with a small B not major league baseball. And I think that's when baseball succeeds the
1: most. I'll tell you my story really quickly. Uh, I did a book on UCLA basketball and took my dad with me. He was retired and he was good at looking, you know, doing research and stuff. So I took him with me to California for a couple of weeks We stayed with my cousin who worked for Universal Studios. And the middle of the first week that we were there, she came home from work. She said, hey, there's a tomorrow night. There's a uh, an employee premiere for a new sports movie. It's supposed to be pretty good. It's going to debut worldwide debut on Friday. But on Thursday night, the employees get to watch it. Would you guys like to go see it? Like, sure. Sure. Sounds good. Baseball movie. Okay, great. And so we saw Field of Dreams the day before the world saw it. And so my dad liked to be treated as special. And so that became his favorite movie. That was in 1989. Every year after that, my brother and I would say, we need to take dad up to Iowa. It's about a nine hour drive from Kansas City. We need to take him up there, let him see the real field. And life kept getting in the way. And finally, in the spring of 2004, so 15 years later, we're saying, dad's getting older. I don't know how much longer he's going to be around. Let's just make the effort to do it. So on Father's Day, we told him, we're taking you to the Field of Dreams in August when the corn is high. Made took time. I had, I had my son who was 21 at the time. My brother had his two sons who were like 19 and 10. And we we made, made that nine-hour drive. We got out of the van. We didn't even hit the restrooms. We went straight to the field. We played catch. We walked into the corn. We, we each took turn, turns hitting. We even recreated the scene where – Doc Graham the ball or you know Moonlight Graham the ball player stepped across the foul line and became Doc Graham to save the kid who was choking and and there was probably 200 people there that day it's a pretty popular thing but they were in those bleachers and they cheered for us when we finished recreating that scene we were there about three hours soaked with sweat we got back in the van and drove nine hours back to Kansas City, got home at like two in the morning, exhausted, went to work the next day, don't remember a thing about work the next day. That was in August of 2004 and in January of 2005, my dad passed away very suddenly of a heart attack. And I couldn't sleep that night and I'm laying in bed about three o'clock in the morning. I looked over at my wife and I said, the first thing I said is I'm really glad we made the time to take dad to the field of dreams talked to my brother the next morning. And I said, how'd you sleep? He said, I couldn't sleep. But about three o'clock in the morning, I looked over at my wife and I said, I'm really glad we took the time to take dad to the field of dreams. So now if I were to share my screen, you would see, see that it's the picture of the six of us, my dad, my brother, and me and our three sons on the field of dreams. So I got choked up watching that game. And I was so jealous of you to be able to be there And hopefully you'll be there next, you know, next year. And hopefully you'll get there in enough time to go out and play catch on that field and just play some baseball in its most simple form.
0: Yeah, that's a great story, an amazing story. And it's funny how and I know Kevin Costner talked about this. The climax of this movie is not a love scene or a car crash or a superhero zooming through the air. It's a father and a son playing catch. It doesn't get much more simple than that. But again, that's where the power is in the simplicity of that moment where you can say things to one another that maybe you otherwise wouldn't say, or otherwise you say nothing at all. And it's just this, this shared experience, the ball going back and forth. I give to you, I receive, you know, there's a literal and figurative connection between father and son. And that's why to me, that place is just, it's magical. You know, they say Disneyland, that's where the magic is, but there's certainly magic in that cornfield in
1: Iowa as well. Yeah, uh, it's, and, and it's interesting. I heard, we talked to the people who were, uh, the people who owned the farm at the time, um, and now the, the family that owned it when the movie was made have since sold it. But we asked him about keeping the field open. He said the, the next year when it came time to plant, uh, Cause that movie was filmed in 88. So in 89 came time to plant and their neighbors were friends were saying, okay, you're going to replant corn. No, I'm going to keep the field. You're crazy. You, you, you know, you're giving up. I mean, it was the plot of the movie again, you're giving up all this income. No people will come to see the field. And it was almost a, a <laughs> almost a recreation of the script and people kept coming. And we were there in the middle of August, you know, and, and weekday and people were coming to, walk to just to see that field. And they're still coming to see that field. So I thought that was pretty cool. All right, um, get, off this, get off that a little bit before I choke up. Um, as you know, I'm in Kansas City. So I think the best World Series, season, at least that Fox has done, was in 2015 when the small market Royals defeated the Mets. Now, I know you grew up a Mets fan. You're not a Mets fan anymore. You're not a fan of any team. Was it hard for you to see your boyhood team go down? Or could you just, see the dichotomy of small market versus big market.
0: Yeah, no, it wasn't hard for me at all in terms of, you know, when I was a kid and rooting for the Mets, first of all, I became a Mets fan because my father's first cousin married Gil Hodges, Joan Lombardi, and um, we called him Uncle Gil growing up. So I became a Mets fan just for that reason alone. Yeah, Um, But I mean, that was so long ago. And once I got into this business, again, I I really didn't root for any team, not even the Mets. And, you know, I was lucky enough. I was a beat writer on the Mets for a few years for Newsday um, and certainly wasn't rooting for the team then. So uh, no, I think to me, again, it goes back to, I'd rather root for a good story, a good narrative. Um, And certainly, you know, Matt Harvey going back out to the mound in the ninth inning was a good narrative. Those are the kinds of things as a broadcaster and a writer that you're really rooting for. So No, it wasn't. It was not hard at all. I mean, I have no allegiance to any team, even one that I rooted for when I was seven, eight years old. So that was pretty easy in terms of divorcing myself from whatever my childhood allegiances were. But um, it was a great world series. There were great moments in that series, big market, small market. Yes. The fact that the Royals got back there after coming a bit short in 14 and finished it off in 15, that was a great story. And just the outpouring, and I say this all the time, it's not just Kansas City, but we've seen it with other teams, the Red Sox most especially, the Cubs, uh, the White Sox in 05. When a team wins for the first time in a generation or more, there's nothing better than that. I mean, it's just crazy how – it becomes, even if you're not a baseball fan, it kind of takes over that community and you can feel that energy in Kansas city. That this is about us. This is our baseball team, right? Baseball is so strong regionally. I know a lot of people knock baseball that it's not the national pastime and football. If you look at a lot of metrics is more popular, um, but on a community basis and how, a. Uh, uh, a city and a region connects to a team. I still think there's nothing better than baseball and a winning baseball team that hasn't won in years. Like nobody in Kansas city was walking around. I don't think with world championship t-shirts and hoodies from 1985. It was a long time ago. Right? So it's really a, a discovery for a generation or two on what it means to have the hometown team win. And there's very few teams that represent hometown home region better than the Royals. So you saw that with all the people that showed up for the parade, how much it meant to those people. So that was something I felt throughout that world series that, especially after getting the world series
1: in 14, it was becoming
0: a big thing to win it this time in 15.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting. I remember sitting in the, in the dugout before the game, Uh, talking to some other longtime baseball writers and and baseball people in Kansas city. And and this was uh, like game one of the 2014 world series. I think it was game one. Yeah. Because game seven was back in Kansas city. And I looked at him and I said, did you ever think we'd be back here during the world series? Did you think we'd be sitting in this dugout watching the Royals play because of the, the way baseball had evolved? And, and it was, it was, unanimous nobody believed we'd be back there and that was really really cool and then to go back again uh that was pretty cool i will correct you on one thing though my daughter who is uh who actually turns uh 36 today was wearing her mom's world series (laughs) champion 85 t-shirt um she was she was born in august uh of 85 Uh, And so she didn't remember the first one, but she she wore that shirt proudly through all those years of really bad baseball. Uh, So you you've been covering the World Series for Fox since 14. How long have you been covering it like for Sports Illustrated and um, other, you know, other media?
0: Well, this is uh, overall this is my 40th year covering Major League Baseball. Um, the first World Series that I covered actually was 1985. Okay. Uh, I remember being at Royal Stadium back then. I was in the aux box and then after the game I would go to the main press box. Uh, It was so crowded. I remember setting up some boxes in a closet to make a makeshift table and writing my game story on this old Radio Shack (laughs) laptop at the time. Um, By the way, that was a great World Series. Very entertaining. So, I had been covering baseball for a few years, but that was the first time I got to cover the World Series. Was actually in
1: the uh, the '85 series. I'm guessing if I, I'm probably going out on a limb here, but so you covered basically how many of that 36th. This will be your 37th World Series later this month. Later in obviously we're re- releasing this uh, the day after the season, so late October, early November. I'm guessing your favorite because you're a baseball historian was 2004 when the Red Sox finally broke that streak.
0: You know, that's so hard to pick though, because that definitely stands out. There's no question about that, that you talk about world series. You didn't think were possible. Yeah. Um, you know, I go back to, um, 1991, the games were so close the Braves and the twins, uh, seven game series. Um, Probably 2001, I would say, stands out the most for me because of the emotions uh, right after 9-11 and and sitting at Yankee Stadium for Game 3 of the World Series. And I wasn't sure if I was in the safest place in the world because of all the security or the most (laughs) dangerous place in the world because it was the first time people were really gathering in public like that in New York And right the day before game three, the attorney general had warned that there could be another attack in New York within a week. Hmm. So the emotions, there's never been anything like that for me. I'm sure for a lot of people sitting in the ballpark and and watching a game. We usually you just get you lose yourself in the game, which is great. When you go to baseball games as a diversion, kind of forget about work and hassles at home, whatever it may be. But this time you were definitely aware of the world at large and what's at stake. And, uh, you know, again, not knowing whether you should be nervous or excited and it's probably a little bit of both. And then, you know, games four and five were just incredible comebacks by the Yankees. And of course then you had game seven in Arizona ends on a walk-off. Very few world series do that. Um, I just remember being wiped out at the end of that. First of all, that postseason. I think I went back and forth to the West coast, maybe three or four times because the Yankees played Seattle, they played Oakland going back and forth and then Arizona in the world series. Um, it was a grind, but it was an emotionally difficult time. And uh, yeah. but the, the baseball games were amazing. So I, that one stands out to me as being so unique in terms of the emotions of the game.
1: All right. Um, just hopefully you're going to be, you're going to keep doing this. You're still a young man. You're just 60. Um, and you don't look 60 by the way. I'm, I'm jealous. I'm 62. And and I look it. um, what does the future hold for you?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, as long as I really enjoy what I'm doing, which I do, uh, I don't think too much about long-term future. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really busy, you know, working for really three different employers when you consider a Sports Illustrated, MLB Network and Fox. Um, there's always things that I'm juggling. Um, so there's not a lot of time to think about long term plans. But, um, yeah, I just want to keep doing this as long as it's fun and challenging, which it is. Um, I don't think I see things, at least in the short term, changing all that much for me you know, I still get a kick when I go to the ballpark, which is great, you know, and I know a lot of people, you know, sometimes they'll ask me, well, and if they're not baseball fans, especially, um, don't you get tired of just doing one sport? And I really don't. I mean, again, if I could choose, it's what I would do is just cover baseball. And, you know, that thrill of being at the ballpark and wondering what's going to happen today and, you know, trying to come up with story ideas that are unique and different, Mm -hmm. uh, I like that challenge. So as long as that's there, I'll not hopefully keep doing this.
1: I like to let my guest open up a little bit of the insight. We talked earlier about a good interview is becomes a conversation and you find out about things. So I like to wrap up with these two questions. First of all, not a question, but talk about your family.
0: Well, family is super important to me. You know, I mentioned my dad and his influence on me and my mom was the most positive person that, I, anybody would ever be around. So, um, you know, I tell people all the time I, I was blessed with the advantage of really being loved as a child and knew it. Um, that's why I tell people I could never be a fiction writer because I had too happy of a childhood <laughs> I don't have any demons to exercise or any kind of crazy stories to, to turn into, uh, to narratives. But, um, yeah, as a family, I'm one of eight children. So I grew up in a big house. Um, three brothers, four sisters. Uh, there were always wiffle ball games and games of catch going on. Um, so family's super important to me. And now I'm lucky enough um, uh, with two children, my wife, and it's just a, there's nothing more important to me than family for sure. Uh, and especially doing what I do with does involve a lot of travel and a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just so thankful that my wife is so understanding my kids are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, talked here obviously a lot about the job and it's pretty much what it's about but the most important thing is just being surrounded by loved ones and and sharing love with them it's there's nothing better than that
1: and how old are your kids
0: well my I have two boys my oldest son is 29 my youngest son is 26 um uh, and they've just been a joy for me I was lucky enough to be coaching them growing up uh in baseball and they played other sports but I coached them in baseball and they were able to play a little bit in college as well. So um, being able to share any kind of experience with them has been great, but the
1: baseball experience, really cool. Yeah. And then finally, the last question I like to wrap up with is what is your legacy? And you can interpret that however you want. I interviewed a, a soccer player, who played for Sporting Kansas City, and now is playing in the highest level in Italy. He's 19 years old, and I ask him the question. He's like, I, I don't think it's written yet. I said, what do you want it to be? But the question is, what is your legacy?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I would agree with that assessment too. We talk a lot about players' legacies and sometimes we write about legacies when they've had like four or five years in their sport and legacy really is, is what's left when you're done and legacies are being written. It's hard to say what's been established or, or, or what is firm at that point before you're done. But um I would say I go back to again, my dad as, as a role model, where he was an incredibly successful high school football coach and baseball coach. Um, and you could look at his one lost record and state championships. And I played on two undefeated high school football teams for him. It's amazing the numbers, but to me, his legacy was the fact that he loved what he did and he shared that with other people. And especially being in education, there's probably nothing greater. Uh, then helping kids realize what their dreams are and they are role models. There's no question about that. Not just as, as fathers, but as educators. So uh, to me, if I could have anything along those lines as a legacy, the fact that first of all, I enjoy doing what I'm doing uh, and helping others as well. Maybe there's something that someone who wants to be a journalist sees in what I do um, it doesn't mean copying me, but even if it's a little thing, um, that's a great legacy. Um, you know, we're all here to make the ne- next generation better. And and hopefully if there's an inspiration on the smallest level or something that they can pick from what I've done over the years,
1: uh, yeah, that, that would be great. All right. Well, Tom, it's great to catch up with you. Hopefully the improvement of the Royals, their young, their very young pitching staff, some great players seemingly great players in the in the high level minor leagues hopefully baseball will bring you back to kansas city in the near future uh and we can can connect face to face again but it's good to catch up with you talk a little bit of news day uh from oh goodness 40 almost 40 years ago and uh, i appreciate you joining us thanks so much i enjoyed it
0: Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmailbooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.